our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 4. John, chapter 4. Last week, uh, I read a larger section. We'll kind of focus the the reading today on uh, what the points that we'll be covering this morning. We'll pick things up in verse 5. And so he, speaking of Jesus, came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave his, to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, that is noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you, then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit, and with that filling, give us a sensitivity to the voice of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And we pray that the truths that we're going to look at this morning, that we wouldn't be hearers only, but doers of your word, that they wouldn't go in one ear and out the other, but we would see the beauty of how you conducted yourself in the midst of all of this, Jesus, and 
and long to have all of that be a part of our lives as well. So speak to us in one more sermon and one more way in which we can become like you in this needy world that we live in. And we pray these things and ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. On Sunday mornings, we are presently in a series through the book of Colossians entitled, uh, Give Me Jesus. And two weeks ago, we examined Paul's statement to the church at Colossae and to us as well concerning all of the broad diversity that exists uh, within the body of Christ and uh, within any local church as well. Where Paul wrote and he said, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, uh, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and all. And as Christians, basically Paul was saying is that we're not to bring in our fleshly, carnal, uh, worldly, uh, pre-salvation prejudices concerning race or ethnicity or social class uh, or uh, sexism into our personal Christian life, nor to then bring it into the body of Christ uh, as a whole, because each of those things are contrary to the person of uh, Jesus himself, and Christ is, as Paul informed us, uh, all and in all of us as Christians. And, uh, and, and the body of, uh, and, and so that's the reason for his speaking of, of it in, in that way. Now, he spoke of prejudice and these kind of things in the context of its existence or not having it, it exist in Christian contexts, in the body of Christ or um, in our Christian to Christian contacts with uh, relationships with one another. And I limited my uh, focus of that sermon to that context strictly. But I think that given the level of racial and class unrest in our nation today, uh, last week we broadened our subject, uh, the focus of our subject of prejudice beyond the church to uh, the church or a Christian's uh, conduct and how it is that we are to uh, relate not to it related to one-on-one -on -one as Christians, but how we are relate to relate to the world related to this issue. In other words, how am I as a Christian to conduct myself in the midst of a very, very racially charged uh, nation and world in order that I might be a redemptive influence in the midst of what it is that's going on. And we turn to the best place that I could think of to go in the Bible to look at just such a, a subject for answering that question, and that is into John chapter 4, where we have the record of Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman uh, at the side of a well in the city by the name of Sychar. And I'm not going to restate all of the old racial and nationalistic and ethnic uh, prejudices and uh, hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles uh, at that time, as I did last week. I'll refer you to the tape related to that. But last week we learned from Jesus in this context that he refused to honor or to be conformed to the prevailing uh, prejudices of uh, the day. 
And the, the prejudices of the day that Jesus chose to ignore was the idea among the Jews that the Samaritans were an inferior people and that the Jews were to have no contact uh, with them. And so he uh, viewed people in a completely different way than even uh, his own people, the Jews, did. And he chose uh, supremely to see every single person as a human being who was loved by God and is in need of uh, God's salvation. And now this morning we want to move forward and take a look at a handful of other applications, I think, that uh, from this passage that uh, talk to us about uh, how, see in Jesus, how he interacted with the, the unsaved world, again, in a racially charged environment. Notice verse 7 that Jesus initiated the conversation with the Samaritan woman. He didn't wait for her to initiate the conversation. That would have been fruitless. Uh, he would have, she would have never, ever broached that uh, gap between them. So he uh, began to speak to her. And obviously, and uh, uh, there's a great uh, racial strain in our nation. There was great prejudice and racial strain between her and him. And there's this great racial strain in, in our nation. And I think that perhaps now more than any time in my adult life, my formative years were the 1970s. That decade was not a perfect decade. And uh, the nation has come a lot further in a lot of different ways, but it was a lot more live and let live than it is now uh, across all kinds of uh, diversity within, within uh, the culture. So things are uh, in a worse place, in my opinion, in some respects today than they were back even then. And I think a lot of people are uptight and uh, because of what is going on right now, a lot of people are experiencing discomfort around those of other races because nobody knows what to say. Nobody knows what to do. Uh, if I do this, will it be understood this way? If I do that, if I say this, I say that, and now we're in the uh, paralysis of, of over-analysis on the on the entire uh, subject here. And uh, so what do we do in terms of when we're in the presence of someone of another race or another ethnicity? And, uh, and you can even get so frustrated by uh, things that you can throw your hands up in the air and say, I'm not e it's not worth the bother. And that's a tragic place to come to. The racial rhetoric has become so intense that... I think a person can find themselves wondering if our nation isn't in danger of uh, re-segregating uh, racially under the influence of this tension. Maybe not outwardly, but in a more dangerous place, in the hearts and the minds uh, of people. And that has to be avoided, uh, certainly and absolutely avoided in the life of any Christian. When you look at Jesus on the scene, and it's a scene of great tension between two peoples, uh, he's the picture of peace. He's completely relaxed. He's absolutely conversational uh, with the woman. He's not uptight in, in any way. And, and of course, that's for a lot of reasons, but uh, doubtless one of those reasons was that he didn't approach her to talk with her about her race. Uh, he didn't approach her to talk about race in general. 
he approached her to talk to her about her soul and to have a spiritual conversation uh, with her. And so he doesn't, even though he was a Jew, he didn't approach her as the representative of a particular race, but as a representative of God, indeed God himself, so uh, representative of God, so to speak. And as a member of a particular race approaching a person of another race, it can be comfortable, uh, uncomfortable if we think of ourselves as Christians uh, supremely in terms of our race or our racial identity. Uh, but that is not to be the supreme identity uh, that we are to approach anyone with as a Christian. Instead, we approach everyone that we approach in life as a representative of God, which is what we are uh, as a Christian. And I think that that understanding can make all of the difference in the world right now in some respects because that's something that's not complicated for us. Uh, that's something that we already know uh, how to do. We know how to engage anyone as a Christian, uh, even when race and uh, relations and protocols in the world are in uh, great transition or great flux or great uh, movement and so many definitions and so many wondering and what's right and what's wrong and what will... We all know what it is to be a Christian and to approach another person as a Christian. The second thing that I'd like us to notice is that Jesus treated her, addressed her as a person and not as a member of a particular uh, race. So he spoke to uh, the human being that she was on the inside. And she, he spoke to the part of her uh, that is identical in all of our lives, whatever our race or outer differences might be. And so he takes and he speaks to her innards. He speaks to the person that's inside uh, this package, this physical body that God has given to us. And he speaks to the broken, lonely, needy, fragile, and insecure person that she was inside and not to her race or her ethnicity on the outside. Even though he was completely aware of all of the dynamics between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles, the messiness of the relationship between those two groups. It's interesting to me that Jesus never brings race up to her. Uh, she brings up the subject of race. And uh, if she hadn't done so, he would have never brought it up because he is dealing with her as a person. I want you to notice too, in kind of that same vein, that Jesus dealt with her as an individual because the world is made up of individuals and every one of them is unique and different. I mean, you, it, it, I, you may think I'm talking down to you today by stating something that's so obvious, but I have my doubts that it's so obvious uh, anymore within our culture. 
And so the world is made up of individuals who are unique and very, very differently. And ultimately, God deals with each of us as individuals. We were uh, created by God individually. We were born into the world individually. We were born again individually. We will individually determine uh, where our destination will be in the life after uh, this life. Even in the Old Testament, it was forbidden for a son to bear the sins of his father or the father to bear the sins uh, of his son. And God determined that right there within the family unit, uh, that even there, every person was to be viewed individually and that they were viewed individually uh, by God. Why? Because there are the good, the bad, and the ugly among every division within mankind. Every race in mankind, every nationality, every ethnicity, every group, right down to the family, right down to the most basic place of human identity, right down to where uh, the gene pool is the most uniform, our family, and yet think about how different the members of Every family are from one another. In your own family, that's as tight or close as a gene pool can get. And as as much as that gene pool is shared, uh, how different uh, family members are. You can have children and wonder, uh, where did that one come from? Uh, or uh, where did any of them come from? Depending on what age they are in, uh, in raising them. And, and, and so we think about within the family how diverse even that unit can be. And I think it's always good to be reminded that not all people of a particular race or nationality uh, or ethnicity or class are the same. And this is the kind, uh, uh, this kind of thing is wrong to think, it's wrong to believe. And again, I know that to state it, it's, it's to state the obvious, but, uh, uh, but it, it isn't at all unusual today. I mean, I, can, I hear it almost uh, every single day, certainly in the media. Unusual today to hear uh, people who not only think this kind of thing, but they are so convinced of it uh, that they're uh, astonishingly willing to state it out loud. Uh, that all whites are the same. Uh, that all blacks are the same, that all rich are the same, all uh, poor are the same, all politicians are the same. Hmm. Uh, All police officers uh, are uh, the same. All liberals are the same. All conservatives are the same. And of course, this kind of thinking much less verbalizing, is so astonishingly ignorant that you don't even know where to begin to process it or begin a conversation with that kind of person because we all know from our own uh, experience in life, any one of us can look at our own race Uh, We can look at our own economic class. We can look at people who are in our own occupation and to recognize that there is very broad diversity. 
of thought and belief within that group. Not every plumber is alike. Not every car uh, salesman is alike. Not every bank executive is alike. Not every doctor or nurse is alike. Anywhere you want to go in life. And yet still there is that tendency to group people in the all category uh, that was happening there in, as Jesus is on that scene uh, in, in Samaria. And uh, 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 sometimes I'll hear it being intimated or even being said openly that all white people are such and such. And I just roll my eyes. I have a twin brother. Uh, We are somewhat alike, but very, very uh, different people. And that's a twin brother. But to, for uh, us, for me to take it and to, for someone to say that about everyone who is white and my contact with a white world, what a crazy thing to say. But you take it then to any race that you want to, any occupation that you want to, any nationality that you want to, and all of us recognize from our own lives that this kind of thing is absolutely uh, absurd. And yet, this kind of thing persists, and it has all the way down through the ages. And, uh, of course, that speaks to the pull of this kind of thing uh, and the appeal of it to our uh, fallen uh, nature, and we can find ourselves being drawn into it. But we must never allow ourselves to be drawn into it. As we see here in Jesus, we're to approach people individually, we're to treat people as as individuals rather than some uh, huge impersonal blob made up of people who are all exactly alike at their core. And, and to treat people as individuals is to do exactly as uh, God does with us and as exactly as we see Jesus uh, do here. I want you to also notice that Jesus very lovingly uh, directed his discussion with the Samaritan woman. And he directed it from the subject of the past racism between the Jews and the Gentiles uh, and the Samaritans to the ultimate solution to all racism and prejudice in mankind. And he, he deals with this in verses 9 through 14. And notice in verse 9 that when Jesus, uh, being a, a Jew, spoke to the Samaritan woman, she immediately wanted to talk about racism. She raised the subject of racism with him. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And Jesus' response in verses 10 through 14 is very, very interesting and very, very instructive. He, uh, he refused to allow himself to be drawn into that conversation. He declined uh, to be drawn into that conversation. A conversation of now recounting 700 years of racial animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And that conversation about that 700 years worth of of history had probably taken place a million times already over the course of 700 years by generation after generation of Samaritans and also uh, Jews and 
That conversation had obviously not produced any change at all in terms of the prejudice and the separation that still occurred between uh, the two groups. And as John put it after 700 years of history there in chapter uh, verse 9, he said, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And instead, Jesus redirected the conversation. He said, I'm not going to engage in that conversation. It's not profitable. He redirected the conversation to the ultimate solution of all racism and of all prejudice in the form of a spiritual birth, calling on her to trust in him uh, as the Messiah, trust in him for salvation, and be born again. An experience that he likened to living water and uh, likened to having a spring, a a fountain of refreshing uh, 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 flowing up forth uh, within her, speaking about the spiritual satisfaction that would be brought into her life if she was born again as the Holy Spirit would come into her life and bring this kind of life and to bring this kind of of, uh, satisfaction. That work that the Holy Spirit does. And when she asks of Jesus, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus doesn't uh, ignore her question about historical racism and prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans uh, and then kind of just jump into Uh, talking about spiritual things because that's what Christians are supposed to do. That's not what's happening here. He actually answers her question, but answers her question in a way that is profitable. And because he starts to talk to her about the ultimate solution uh, to this and all racism and uh, that the only solution that you have uh, 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 absolute control over in this regard is individually. And so he calls on her to choose individually and personally to be born again by the Holy Spirit and become a Christian. And if I fail to do that, then I have failed to do the single greatest thing under my control and bringing an end to racism or an end of any prejudice uh, in my own life, and then in turn by uh, lessening the footprint of racism in the, in the, the world uh, by one footprint, uh, by my own. There's a, a, a pastor, famous pastor in Texas who uh, Tony Evans, wonderful, wonderful Bible teacher, and he said, he, he said this. He said, racism isn't a bad habit. He said, it isn't a mistake. Uh, it's a sin. And the answer is not sociology. The answer is theology. And he's absolutely accurate uh, on that. And it's the very thing that Jesus is modeling for us here in in the chapter. It doesn't mean that government shouldn't pass laws uh, to protect against uh, discrimination based upon race or other prejudices, but when they do, 
or when we do, it's always with the recognition that while those laws can attempt to determine people's outward compliance on these issues, they can never change a person's heart. Only God can change a person's heart the way that he does when a person is born again. And prejudice is a terrible sin, but it is only a symptom sin. It is always a symptom of the far greater sin existing in a human life that is lived separated from a relationship with God. Uh, The great sin of that person's life is a sin that is occurring between them and God and their refusal to receive Jesus uh, as a Savior. But once I become a Christian and the Holy Spirit comes in my life, I have taken care of the single great sin or failure in my life. And when that great sin is taken care of, then all of the other symptom sins, including racism, classism, any other ism that you want to talk about, is then taken care of as the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and begins to work on those things one at a time to conform them into uh, the image of Christ. And so for the Christian, any discussion about race or any other form of prejudice that does not move to its ultimate individual solution in Christ, then that is a wasted opportunity uh, to share the gospel. We possess the answer to these problems and to all problems uh, in, in the world. And, and we will never know what God will do with simply stepping up and telling a person how these things can change in their own lives and how they can make a difference in this regard individually. I mean, Jesus knew what this woman was going to do. He knew she was going to become saved, go into the village, share about him in that city of Sychar. The whole village would come out and end up believing in him. Uh, But we don't know when we talk to people. And it can look like, oh, I'm going to be, you know, jamming Jesus down their throat, or I'm going to be, you know, come off as like Mr. Goody Two-Shoes or whatever it might be. And so we keep the answer within ourselves not knowing that just simply telling people what the ultimate solution on an individual level is to this issue, and it has to begin there, then we don't know what might happen until we uh, do that. I think that, um, uh, so when we engage in conversations with people, as Jesus models for us here, We don't have to allow the other person to dictate where the conversation goes. You ever been in a conversation that's like three or four people and you go, oh no, it's going there. I'm stuck. This is going to be fruitless. We've already been over this a million times and and all, and it's, it's, it's miserable. So when we're engaged in a conversation on anything, but certainly on things as important as this, We do not have to allow 
uh, others to direct the conversation, we can direct that conversation so it becomes redemptive related to what it is that we're discussing. It's important to note also that uh, her life of isolation, and she really has a life of isolation here, uh, a life of, of ostracism, a life of rejection uh, on, uh, on the part of others toward her, that it wasn't solely uh, due to racism. It wasn't solely due to the fact that she was a Samaritan. Uh, it was caused in large part, as we see here in verses 15 through 19, it was caused in large part by her own choices in life and her own decision-making in life. It's important to understand that when she goes to the well in order to draw water at noon outside of the city of Sychar, that was not the normal hour that women went out of the household to draw water. Uh, normally, women would go out and they would draw water early in the morning and then later as evening is approached and when the day was much cooler in that hot Middle Eastern kind of, uh, of, of weather. But she comes out at noon and she comes out at noon for good reason. And you ask yourself, why is she the kind of woman who got her water at the well at noon? when nobody else was getting their water uh, at noon. And it was because as Jesus drew out uh, uh, from her in his conversation with her that she had been married five times and now she's just living with a guy outside of wedlock and that was something that would have been absolutely scandalous in that culture and, and in that day. And as a result of her background, she would have been viewed as a sexually immoral uh, woman and not the kind of woman uh, who would be welcome to join all of the other women in the city uh, at the well at the customary times for drawing uh, water. And notice that Jesus brings up her sin uh, to her. He surfaces it. And he uh, brings up uh, the life that has resulted uh, for her as a result of her sin, a life of now coming to the well at noon in the heat of the day for water. It has resulted in a life of rejection. It has resulted in a life of ostracism and separation. And Jesus doesn't do this in order to uh, rub, uh, uh, rub it in here, but to cause her to see her need for uh, salvation. Jesus knows very, very well she's going to be saved in a moment. But what she do he doesn't want her to do is for her to believe in him as the Messiah, become a Christian, get up and walk away with her pot, and then have the thought into her mind, her mind well, he would have never gave, gave me that offer of salvation uh, if he knew the full story about me. God would never save me. He would never have anything to do with me if he knew everything about my past. Jesus says, let's bring out the most scandalous out of your past. I'm safe to do that with. So that when you leave my presence, you realize you have received the full forgiveness of God, whatever it is that is, is back there. God knows and still loves you and still wants to 
forgive you. And so uh, Jesus revealed to her that salvation was being offered to her uh, by him with the full knowledge of her past. But our, for our purposes here this morning, we also want to see that it isn't racist uh, and it isn't unchristlike to point out, as Jesus did to her, that her plight in life was not the result of prejudice alone, but it was also the result of her own choices in life and her own decision-making in life as well. And so to judge someone, uh, to come to conclusions about a person uh, solely based upon their color or their ethnicity, that is racism. That is wrong. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, judge not that you be not judged. In other words, I can't just come to you or anyone and just look at you and say, I know what they're thinking. Uh, uh, um, I know what their motive is in doing this. And I'm trying to read inside and judge uh, what is only known to them and can't be known to me by virtue of what they are uh, outwardly. And so we're not to, to judge people's hearts or their motives. But I, I am uh, to judge uh, fruit. In that same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. Uh, good trees don't bring forth bad fruit, and bad fruit, uh, bad trees don't bring forth good fruit. You will know a tree by its fruit. The fruit always reveals uh, the root. And there in the Sermon on the Mount, he not only allows us as Christians to, but he commands us to uh, 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 the freedom to judge a person by their fruits. In other words, while we're not uh, to come to any conclusion about a person based solely upon their class or their skin color or their nationality or their occupation or whatever, but the moment that person does something. The moment that person says something, the moment that person begins to believe in a certain way and then communicate that, then when I judge them for that, it is no longer now to judge them on the basis of race or class, but now to judge them on the basis of character. And this is a distinction uh, that is largely lost uh, today, uh, I think, in terms about racism, what is not racism uh, within our culture, and seems to be lost on many people and, and not sufficiently represented sometimes in the conversations that are being had on race. It is not racism, uh, racism to judge a person, to come to conclusions about another person uh, and whether that their, their conduct or their words are right or wrong based upon what they say, based upon their uh, uh, actions or their attitudes or uh, their sinful behavior or their ungodly uh, behavior. And further, it is not racist to hold uh, that person responsible 
for what he or she says or the life that they live. And there's an awful lot of of bad behaviors and sinful behaviors that endeavor to hide behind the term uh, racism today. But it is not racism. That is to judge a person's character. Now, I, I also want you to notice more specifically that the woman of Samaria's plight or her isolation not only from Jews, but from Samaritans, her rejection was not simply due to her, uh, her own bad choices and bad decision-making, but that her immoral life was a violation of God's word and his commandments. In other words, the gr- her greatest problem in life it, it, it was not that she was up against the Jews, or up against the other women in her city, but that she was up against God. And you cannot win in a battle or a fight with God. She is on the wrong side of God. Forget the Jews. Forget even Samaritans. Her problem is she's on the wrong side uh, of God. And she's on the wrong side of a sowing and reaping process in her life. As Paul put it to the churches in Galatia, he said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He says, don't be deceived. And he tells us don't be deceived because somehow we can convince ourselves that we will be the exception to the sowing and reaping processes of life. We're different from everyone else in that regard. But it's not true. Paul said, for he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And her biggest problem in life, and the only problem that she had full control over, was that she was sowing to the flesh and reaping corruption, uh, reaping a rotten life as a result, as opposed to sowing to the Spirit and obeying God's commandments and then enjoying the quality uh, of uh, of life and the abundant life that's available now and then everlasting life after uh, after this life is done. And And the point that I'm trying to make here is this is that if God is your problem, then only God is your solution. If God is your problem, only God is your solution. Whether it is this woman by that well 2,000 years ago or today. And there are a whole world of people today trying to blame Uh, the Jews or the Samaritans are blaming different uh, people of different races or nationalities or classes, etc., for all of their problems when their real problem is between them and God caused by their rebellion against Him and against His commandments. And like this woman, so often they are on a search for God and they don't even realize Uh, that they are. And so here we sit in a nation, as a nation, 
in large part in race relationships between blacks and whites. And part of the problem is genuine racism. It will always be a part of the world and every part of the world and our nation included. And so part of the problem is genuine racism. And part of the problem lies within the realm of personal responsibility and decision-making. And, and yet if uh, one side only wants to talk about racism uh, and then the other side only wants to talk about uh, the breakdown of the family unit or the number of fatherless homes, the number of children uh, born out of wedlock and, and, and uh, 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 so forth, then this gap will continue to exist. A, a solution will require putting everything on the table. If I'm going to put racism on the table, I have to put personal responsibility on the table as well. If I want to put uh, personal responsibility on the table, then I have to be willing to have racism be put on the table as well. Because until you can agree on the problems, then you have no hope of ever coming to a, a solution. And any meaningful, righteous, long-lasting solutions will need to be based upon God's Word or God's uh, truth. But while we wait for this uh, open, uh, honest dialogue uh, to occur on a national level in our nation, the single greatest thing we can do is to come to know and obey God as a Christian and then He will bless us and look after us in the midst of all of these things that are going on around us that we have no ultimate control over. And to her credit, and I'll tell you, I have great respect for this, uh, this woman. I look forward to meeting her one day. She had the humility to acknowledge the truth of what Jesus was uh, saying to her. She took personal responsibility for her choices and, and her, her decision-making. There's no excuses on her part, no blame-shifting on her part, and she moved forward in God's plan for her, her life. And then finally, in verses 20 to 24, I want you to also notice that, uh, to, ha uh, that to have our views or to have our thinking, or to have our beliefs challenged by others, and even corrected by others, and to be told that we're wrong in what we believe is not racism, and it is not uh, unchristlike, because that's exactly what Jesus did here. So the woman of Samaria, she poses the question to Jesus, there in verse uh, uh, 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And so she asked Jesus uh, a question about where is the right place to worship God? And uh, the Samaritans believed that the right place to worship God was on Mount Gerizim. The Jews believe that the right place to worship God was in Jerusalem. And you notice what Jesus does there. He informs her uh, concerning a centuries-long 
uh, a, a controversy between the Samaritans and the Jews about salvation, about the worship of God, and Jesus informs her that on this issue, the Jews are right and the Samaritans are wrong. That no one would ever come to salvation through the religious system of the Samaritans. And, and, and somebody needed to, to tell her that, and Jesus did. Among other things, this teaches us that not all religions or cultures in the world are equal. And they are not all equal in the eyes of God. And nobody is helped if uh, uh, we are not free uh, to not only bring that up, but willing to, to hear that. In this regard, I've always been fascinated. It's a very interesting passage. Sometimes you can read it and you hit it your first time through the Bible and you go, what is that about? Um, but Paul writes his letter to uh, Titus. And Titus is there in, the, in Crete and he's there uh, is, is a, is serving the Lord and sharing the gospel there. And, and Paul's words concerning the citizens of Crete in that letter, very interesting, very instructive, I think. Let me read it to you, Titus chapter 1, verse 10. He said, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths have stopped, uh, uh, who, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not uh, for the sake of dishonest gain. And one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, uh, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, Paul is not uh, saying that the, the Cretans were uh, intrinsically these things, that uh, this is the, uh, they were these things based upon heredity or based upon uh, birth. He was merely observing the kind of person that the cultural environment of Crete was producing uh, generally. And, and I think in doing so, he provides us with some very refreshing uh, candor on, on, in the discussion. The culture of Russia is different than the culture of Germany. See what a grasp I have on the obvious this morning. Uh, the culture of Japan is different than the culture of England. The culture of Austria is different uh, than the culture of Iran. And so it goes anywhere you want to play that all the way through the world. If you were to, uh, to be raising up uh, missionaries in another part of the world with the intent of sending them to the United States of America, to uh, preach and to share uh, the gospel as a part of their training, you might want to speak to them uh, biblically on how to deal uh, with the gods of materialism or with the gods of covetousness uh, within the culture. And uh, you would certainly want to address what the Bible has to say about those issues and any missionaries you would send to the United States as opposed to maybe uh, uh, India or someplace like that. And it's not because we as Americans are genetically more prone to these things than others. It's because it is the context 
the cultural context that we live in and the cultural context that fashions uh, us and still tries to do so. And in the same way to live in Crete at that time would be to recognize that the culture was generally marked by dishonesty, brutality, wickedness, laziness, gluttony, and, uh, and I think that all of this in terms of uh, the kind of human being that is produced by the various cultures of the world is important in examining not only national cultures, but uh, also the tribal or the racial subcultures that occur and exist within a country as well. And so the question becomes, how are we able to judge the superiority or the inferiority of one culture to another? How can we assess a culture uh, objectively and, and safely and assess the value of the culture we are allowing to fashion us supremely and to determine whether it is white culture or whether it is black culture or any other culture, whether it is a good culture to be fashioning my thinking and my doing. Now there's no culture in the world, no human culture uh, that is, is uh, perfect. But the closer a culture is or the closer that it adheres to what is taught in the Bible or the closer that it reflects the teachings of a book of wisdom like the book uh, of, of Proverbs, for instance, then the more healthy or the more virtuous that culture is going to be, regardless of race. And so a culture that devalues honesty or freedom or sexual purity or humility or other-centeredness or hard work or respect for authority or respect for human life or any of the other things that are commended in the book of Proverbs, for instance, is a culture that is not worthy of being a culture that I allow to fashion me because it is an inferior culture. And as an inferior culture, it will produce an inferior human being. If something violates the Word of God, then not only is that not to be given uh, status or to be uh, called commendable, but it is to be resisted. And this is such an important point, I think, that needs to be emphasized today. When we raise our children and we raise them and we resist wrong in their lives, not because we don't like them or love them or because we are anti-children, but because we do love them and we want what is best for them. And just as we must resist our children until they become mature enough to see the wisdom and the love behind what it is that we are doing, so too it can be within a culture where it needs to be resisted because it lacks the maturity, it lacks uh, the truth, it lacks the wisdom and godly foundation that is necessary for it to be safe and for it to be embraced. Whether that is Black Lives Matter, speaking of the organization, not the sentiment that it, that it speaks of, with its 
uh, anti-nuclear family uh, part of its uh, agenda, or whether it has to do with Antifa or white supremacy or abortion or Mormonism. And there's nothing wrong to, with pointing out what is uh, wrong in any culture that, is, uh, that exists around us. And the Samaritan woman, she was on the wrong track spiritually. Jesus told her so, and her happy ending, as it's recorded in the rest of the passage, would never have happened if he hadn't uh, been able to speak these things to her. And you know one of the things that I love about the interaction between um, Jesus and her is the freedom. Uh, here is a Jewish man. She is a Samaritan woman, and she is with a Jewish man who is clearly a rabbi and uh, who has now knows her past. He hasn't revealed himself as the Messiah to her yet. And yet she feels very comfortable in even exposing her ignorance and even asking questions of him to see how would he answer this in the light of how she had been raised uh, to view it. And in all of it, she considers him absolutely safe to be able to do that. And it really is a wonderful thing in the body of Christ to be able to have and to know people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of differences that we have and to find a safe someone who loves Jesus and Jesus is in their life and to say, you know, I've always wondered about this or I've always wondered why and then to be able to ask them uh, that question. There's a couple of Proverbs that come to mind uh, concerning remaining humble and teachable enough to um, have our uh, misguided beliefs uh, be challenged by others, and certainly to allow our misguided beliefs to be challenged by God. One of them is Proverbs chapter 12, uh, verse 1. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Ouch. Now when I read something like that, I mean, that's a gift for clarity, isn't it? Sometimes I look at verses that I don't particularly maybe care for at the moment. I try to find a way to weasel around them or whatever. He leaves me no room there at all. It's not making three points at once, just one point, the point that needs to be made, and with a force that a knucklehead like me needs to hear. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck, in other words, is unteachable, will suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. One of the things that's interesting to me that if all of the races of people in the world and of all of the nationalities of people in the world, that God chose to send a Savior into the world through the Jewish people. Isn't that interesting? I thought he would have chosen the Scots. But he's, he sent the Savior into the world through the Jews. 
And I think that one of the reasons he did so is so that no one could ever in the whole wide world look at Jesus and think he doesn't know anything about suffering. He doesn't know anything about being a persecuted minority. He wouldn't understand me. I can't relate to him. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. No, the fact of the matter is the Jews have been the most persecuted people in all of human history. And no Jew was more persecuted than Jesus himself who was crucified not only by the Romans, but by his own people. And not for his own sins or wrongdoing, but for the sins of the world. And there is something about him that makes the whole world feel safe when he speaks into our lives about uh, truth that is uncomfortable for us to receive. And that sense that He cares about us and that He loves us and that He understands all and more that we could hope that He would understand in order to speak truth to us. And if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, here is this woman comes from this background. Jesus doesn't do, you know, kind of a wink and a nod related to her sin. He doesn't do a wink and a nod related to any of our sin. He doesn't kind of say things in a way that she can't really understand about whether he's the Messiah or not, or whether she needs to trust him or not. He makes all of it absolutely uh, clear. But the beautiful thing is we see concerning her is that God knows all about where we've been, what we've done, what we've seen before we have become Christians, uh, 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 before we become a Christian, and he's not put off by any of it. And he still extends the offer of being saved and then entering into the quality of life that we see in him in this passage rather than in uh, the Jews or in the Samaritans as they're represented in the passage. And if you'd like to trust in Jesus as your Savior today and begin a relationship with Him, there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service and uh, also men and uh, women available up on either side of the screen outside. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, again in this second service, I pray that you would use today and, and the last three weeks and what we've looked at here and, and the life of Jesus and that you would use it uh, to correct anything in our lives that needs to be uh, corrected, however large and however small. And that you would use it, Lord, as well to affirm within our hearts things that are there and well-placed and look like you and are right and shouldn't be moved under any circumstances. And we pray, Lord, that you would use these last three weeks in our lives to help us to be a redemptive influence in the world in which we live for all of its complexities, for all of its messy 
uh, history for all of its diversity, uh, Lord, and that we would be an influence in the midst of it for your kingdom. And we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.